As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen, and welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk, the podcast about sports and the mind and trying to live well in general. Today's episode is going to be another chunk of my audiobook, chapters 15, 16, and 17, titled Love and Luck, Better Habits, and Mental Balance, respectively. And this section of the audiobook is outlining the kind of mental, psychological, spiritual shift that took place in the fall before my senior season. So I outline some different habits that I adopted, some more sustainable habits in terms of training and homework and limiting time on social media. I also describe how wonderful it was to meet Rebecca, who I am still with six years later, and how spending time with her on the weekends was much healthier for me than going out and getting drunk every weekend, which had been my habit my freshman, sophomore, and junior year, and the kind of freedom that it brought to feel like I didn't have to do that every weekend and to just spend time with my new girlfriend was really transformative for me, both on and off the court. And then some other insights that I learned in the fall before my senior season and some tips that I think other young athletes can take away from this part of the book for how to set up a sustainable routine as a college athlete that doesn't make you so straight edge and rigid that you can't have any fun or enjoy your life, but also allows for adequate rest and recovery, both physically and mentally. So without further delay, here is chapter 15, 16, and 17 of my new book. Chapter 15, Love and Luck, 1. I saw beautiful women on campus every week, women I hardly ever saw at house parties and bars. On Tuesdays and Thursdays after lunch, I often saw Rebecca sitting on a bench outside the cafeteria with some friends. Her beauty was intimidating. She's a first-generation Ethiopian-American with long legs and perfectly lovely dark skin. She had her own unique style and fashion and always looked just right. It took a while but I finally worked up enough nerve to approach her. As I headed out of the cafeteria, I told myself I'd talk to her if she was sitting outside on a bench. When I pushed the doors open, there she was with four other women. Pressure rose in my chest, my heart rate doubled, and I tried to invent a reason for not going through with it. But my body was moving in her direction, and then we made eye contact. If I veered away, I'd never generate the nerve I needed. Walking towards the group, I did my best to look self-assured, confident. Should I address all five women or just Rebecca? I said hi to everyone before I spoke directly to her. When we exchanged some pleasantries about how our summers had gone, I told her about my time in Peru. Then I suggested that we hang out sometime and catch up, which felt stupid as soon as I said it. We weren't old friends and had no need to catch up on anything. I'd set myself up to be publicly rejected, but she agreed. I handed her my phone so she could type in her number, said goodbye to the group, and walked away in a daze. I'd been admiring Rebecca from a distance for nearly four years, 
secretly wanting to ask her for a date, and I found myself relating that fact to what had happened to me in basketball. Sometimes we have to risk failure to succeed. On our first date, I took Rebecca to the book bar near campus. She looked stunning, and I was nervous, but thankfully the skills I'd learned for dealing with unease on the basketball court seemed to work here too. My anxiety subsided as we fell into conversation. We talked for three hours without interruption. She was smart, funny, gentle, and impressively self-assured. On our drive back to her apartment, I asked her to plug in her phone and play some music, and the first song she picked was Average Joe by Kendrick Lamar, a niche rap song that I loved and that only rap music fans with good taste cared about. Next came a blues rock song by the White Stripes that I'd never heard but liked immediately. After dropping Rebecca off, I felt intensely happy, something far beyond ego or validation. I was grateful for time spent with her, and the concept of falling in love made perfect sense. It really did feel like I was falling, whether I wanted to or not. Two, quote, the ability to be friends with a woman, particularly the woman you love, is to me the greatest achievement. In all my life, I've only known a few couples that were friends as well as lovers. Henry Miller, on Turning 80. Friday and Saturday nights of too much beer and loud noise were replaced by peaceful nights with a girlfriend who wasn't into partying much either. We went to concerts, out to dinner, watched Curb Your Enthusiasm, and always enjoyed our time together. Through long days on the court and in the library, I found myself looking forward to spending time with Rebecca. For years, I'd been influenced by beliefs held by many members of my generation, that monogamy was unnatural, marriage was a trap, having kids was unethical, and more. Some of my male friends ridiculed traditional relationships, and some of my female friends claimed they'd never wanted a family. I listened to self-help gurus on YouTube, pointing out everything that's supposedly wrong with a committed relationship, and claiming that sexual variety is the number one goal of romantic life. This produced fantasies of being rich and single, traveling the world, and meeting beautiful women everywhere. I don't think being in a long-term relationship is always better than being single. There's an oversupply of bad relationships, maybe especially in high schools and colleges. Some of my teammates were in destructive relationships and seemed tortured by them, and their college experiences and basketball careers suffered as a result. But I'd been blind to how a relationship that worked could improve my life. Rebecca's energy was refreshing. She's a genuinely happy and decent person, whose positive qualities seem to rub off on the people she's with. She has no interest at all in sports, and it was nice being with someone who liked me for reasons that had nothing to do with basketball. Her apartment was clean and well-decorated, and she took the time to water plants and light candles in the evenings, an oasis for my messy apartment and the stuffy gyms and locker rooms I spent so much of my time in. When I was there, I forgot all about my shooting percentages and my upcoming math tests. After spending time with her, I felt energized about basketball and my classes, and life in general, and I liked who I became when I was with her, with no feeling that I needed to change anything. I could just be me. I found myself in a happy relationship as soon as I became happy myself, and I knew how lucky I was. Chapter 16. Better Habits 1. So each day, I made sure to practice my meditation for at least 20 minutes. Some days I found time to sit twice. Before practices and math tests, I breathed deep, centering belly breaths, which calmed my nervous system. When I lay down at night to fall asleep, I gently scanned my body before following my breaths until I dozed off. Along with increased confidence and joy on the court, I was surprised to notice another consequential benefit. My priorities began changing. For the first time in my life, I became drawn to simplicity. 
Instead of wanting to be stimulated, excited, distracted, and entertained, I wanted peace, calm, and a clear mind. Walking across campus from one class to another, I found myself organically noticing the beauty of the trees and the clouds and feeling satisfied with life for no particular reason. FOMO, the fear of missing out, is a widespread phenomenon in our 21st century culture, and it's all too common on college campuses. I felt it on many nights when I went to bed early and sober before a practice or game, knowing that parties were happening. Missing out on something that my classmates were enjoying made me jealous. Then, as a senior, the experience turned itself around. I was satisfied and in fact felt relieved to be spending a quiet night with my friend and roommate. Many of my former desires and impulses had been harmful, leading to temporary jolts of pleasure, distraction, and entertainment, but ultimately to suffering. I sought highs that came with subsequent lows. Joseph Goldstein writes this in Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. Quote, Our aim shouldn't be to follow the heart, but to train the heart. All of us have a mix of motivations. Not everything in our hearts is wise or wholesome. The great power of mindful discernment allows us to abandon what is unwholesome and cultivate the good. This discernment is of inestimable value for our happiness and well-being. End quote. Two, since high school, I'd known that to feel and perform my best, sleep, nutrition, and hydration were important. But it wasn't until I developed a mindfulness meditation practice that I was able to truly commit to these things. I became mindful of my experience day to day, and I noticed what habits and behaviors were improving my life and those that were diminishing it. I realized that grabbing a few slices of pizza in the cafeteria wouldn't be worth the brain fog and lethargy I'd feel during the difficult workout I had coming in the afternoon. Choosing grilled chicken, salad, and a sweet potato for lunch required less willpower as a senior because I appreciated mental clarity more than jolts of temporary pleasure. I became acutely aware of how sleep affected my mood, my cognitive abilities, and my strength and endurance. In years prior, feeling tired, stressed, and lazy led me to want a release through alcohol or junk food. As a senior, all I needed was a good night of sober sleep. I no longer allowed myself to study late into the night, and this forced me to spend my time more productively throughout the day. Knowing that I couldn't study until 1 a.m. meant that I had to put my phone away and work without distraction. Five hours of studying mixed with YouTube and Snapchat became two hours of focused work. On my best nights, I put my phone away an hour before bed, and rather than looking at a screen, I did some reading before I went to sleep. This routine helped produce deep, restful sleep. Sleep expert Matthew Walker claims that, quote, sleep is the greatest legal performance-enhancing drug that most people are probably neglecting in sport, end quote. In his book, Why We Sleep, Walker cites evidence that adequate sleep, eight to 10 hours of restful sleep, is crucial for skill development, endurance, strength, durability, testosterone levels, mood, and emotional regulation. Many in athletic culture think that sleeping less demonstrates strength and toughness, presumably creating more time for useful productivity. I've heard athletes, coaches, motivational speakers, and tech folks brag about how they get by with four or five hours of sleep per night. Apparently, they regard sleep as an opportunity cost, and the logic appears to make sense. While everyone else sleeps comfortably for eight hours, I'll rip myself out of bed after five hours and have three extra hours of productivity. This is supposed to be seen as a sacrifice leading toward success, something like grabbing a kale salad instead of a cheeseburger. 
But this is misguided and dangerous behavior. I think writer Maria Popova gives the perfect advice, quote, be as religious and disciplined about your sleep as you are about your work. We tend to wear our ability to get by on little sleep as some sort of badge of honor that validates our work ethic. But what it really is, is a profound failure of self-respect and of priorities. What could possibly be more important than your health and your sanity, from which all else springs? End quote. Of all the changes I made as a senior, my commitment to restful sleep was the most impactful. Creating firm boundaries to protect my sleep turned me into an entirely different player and person. Three, quote, the modern struggle is fighting weaponized addiction. Naval Ravikant. My therapist told me that spending time away from my phone would likely help me resolve my issues with anxiety and depression. Along with fragmenting my attention, she pointed out that virtually everyone out there is broadcasting a happy, successful life on the internet, and that I might be contributing to my own gloom by scrolling Instagram and constantly seeing people who look happier than I am. Even though I understood her advice, I was too addicted to take it. My mental training helped with this too, as I paid attention to my impulses to distract myself with the phone. When stuck on a math problem, I reflexively picked up my phone for a quick hit of entertainment and sometimes fell into a zombie-like trance. After a YouTube video of Damien Lillard highlights, another video that seemed irresistible was offered, and then another, and another, endlessly. Sometimes half an hour went by before I got back to the math problem. We tend to think that platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are free, and that we're the lucky customers who get to use them. The truth is that advertisers are the customers of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and that we're the product. Our habits and behavior are collected and sold, and hugely profitable companies thrive because of the amount of time we spend on their carefully manipulated platforms. The more we scroll and click, and the more ads we see, the more money they make, enabling them to keep making matters worse. We have what design ethicist Tristan Harris calls the attention economy, where companies like Facebook, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat compete to grab and keep user attention. Teams of software engineers work tirelessly to make their products as addictive as possible. An athlete who wants to balance training, homework, physical therapy, extra practice, and a social life needs to be able to study and train without distractions. But carrying around a literal distraction machine makes this nearly impossible. As a senior, I drastically reduced the time I spent on social media and my smartphone. When I did homework, I turned the phone off and put it in my bag, out of sight. Before bed, I turned it to do not disturb and put it far away from me so that it wouldn't wake me at night and so I wasn't tempted to begin my morning by scrolling. Four, my only previous attempts to quit drinking heavily had been desperate efforts to gain an advantage over my teammates and to feel superior to my friends. But when I didn't feel any less anxious and unhappy, I soon found myself tipping back a cheap bottle of vodka. When I stopped drinking too much for the sake of mental clarity, it worked. I still went to occasional parties and enjoyed myself. Heavy drinkers often try to talk non-drinkers into joining their club. Deontay, a senior when I was a freshman, was an interesting example. Every Saturday after our last practice of the week, we'd badger him in the locker room about not drinking with us. He was a great player and loved the sport and was also passionate about music and making beats. Many of the pre-games were held at his house, so while we drank, we'd hear the ceaseless thumping of beats coming from his room for hours on end. 
He'd come out once in a while to check in and never seemed to cast judgment. He'd simply say hi, then return to his room and continue making beats. While I joined my teammates in giving him grief for not wanting to drink and party, and in pretending our behavior was the only way to go, I was in fact impressed with Deontay's self-assurance. It's no surprise to me that he now has a fine job in LA with Apple Music, is still in great physical shape, and writes poetry as a serious hobby. Now I see him as an example of someone smart enough and strong enough to think for himself. Another important finding from Matthew Walker's book is how detrimental alcohol is for adequate sleep and recovery. When we go to bed drunk, we generally fall asleep quickly and we're in a senseless state that gives the illusion of sound sleep when it's actually sedation. Alcohol blocks the brain from the deep stages of sleep essential for recovery and health, and habitual drinking makes adequate sleep impossible. Alcohol before bed might help one fall asleep faster, but it blocks the brain from the deep sleep athletes need for recovery and skill development. Too much alcohol has detrimental effects on muscle recovery. Muscles don't grow during workouts in the weight room. They're broken down and recover and grow later during periods of rest. If an athlete's only day of rest is spent recovering from last night's alcohol, muscles don't properly recover. Without getting drunk every weekend, my progress in the gym and in the weight room went better than ever before. Five, people from cultures around the world have used alcohol as a bonding agent for thousands of years. And today, going out to bars and parties can be an enjoyable and beneficial activity for young people, an opportunity to develop social skills and to create lasting bonds with close friends. When a sports team parties together, it can reduce inhibitions and build camaraderie, chemistry, and trust. Some parents and coaches try to convince athletes that they should avoid partying, drugs, and alcohol in high school and college. This is well-intentioned theoretical advice, but it's about as helpful as promoting sexual abstinence until marriage. Drugs and alcohol are readily available in nearly all high schools and colleges, and most students, athletes among them, experiment with various substances. I don't think trying to abstain altogether from drugs and partying is necessary or wise. Some of my favorite college memories were from wild nights out with my friends. Early in the Regis school year, the process of teammates bonding while drinking together was beneficial, up to a point. The law of diminishing returns set in when the ritual continued weekend after weekend. The development of chemistry stalled, and hangovers and lack of sleep compounded. I remember stumbling through too many cold winter nights with my other drinking teammates, hunting for the most enjoyable party with the prettiest girls. Seeing myself in the mirror of a restroom often cut through the drunken fog and produced an unpleasant clarity. The glossed over eyes and bright red cheeks I saw weren't really me. I knew I was doing this to myself, weekend after weekend, as a way to run from my own unhappiness. I suspected that some of my friends felt the same way, and I was surprised that Tolstoy's description of a college party from his 1856 novel, Childhood, Boyhood, and Youth, related directly to my experience. Quote, but above all, I remember that throughout the whole evening, I constantly felt that I was acting very stupidly, pretending to be having a very good time, pretending to be very keen on drinking, and acting as though it never even occurred to me that I was drunk. And I felt all the time that others, pretending just the same, were also acting very stupidly. It seemed to me that each one individually found it as unpleasant as I did, but in the belief that he was the only one who had this feeling of unpleasantness, considered himself bound to pretend he was having a good time so as not to spoil the general merriment. End quote. The same basic principle applies to marijuana, 
which is in fact relatively harmless in moderation, but as with alcohol, is often abused. It's typical for a young athlete who enjoys smoking pot to want to smoke whenever possible, before eating, before training, before class, before bed, which is clearly not a helpful way to live. Pot is often used as a way to wind down at the end of the day, calm anxiety, and help the user fall asleep. Matthew Walker concludes that getting high before bed blocks the critical deep sleep vital for emotional regulation, leaving users anxious and depressed the following day, and therefore tempted to self-medicate again with cannabis. This becomes a cycle in which the perceived remedy actually causes the problem it's meant to solve. So while a habit of smoking pot is undoubtedly less physically destructive than a habit of drinking too much alcohol, athletes who go to bed high night after night deprive themselves of the principal benefits of deep sleep, enhanced skill development, and increased endurance. Six, I'm not recommending that young athletes become obsessively disciplined regarding drugs and partying. An inevitable part of growing up is the freedom to explore and sometimes make mistakes. Those who never allow themselves to make a mistake or an unfortunate decision are missing out on something necessary. As Nassim Taleb put it in The Bed of Procrustes, quote, wisdom in the young is as unattractive as frivolity in the elderly, end quote. But too many young athletes derail their careers when they take it too far, either by making one huge life-altering mistake or by slowly sabotaging their careers over time. Even in the midst of wild, rebellious behavior, there have to be boundaries set that are never to be crossed, driving drunk, unprotected sex with a new partner, sex without clear consent, taking drugs that haven't been tested for purity, etc. It's important to remember that a small risk, when taken repeatedly, becomes a huge risk. A 5% risk, repeated 20 times, becomes a 64% risk. You surely don't have to risk your entire career, or your future, or the health and safety of others in order to have fun. Young people trying to justify questionable behavior tend to tell themselves comforting lies. I've often heard, and sometimes used, these rationalizations myself. I'll stop smoking pot every day when school starts again. I'll stop drinking every weekend when games start. I'll wear a condom next time. I'll stop taking unprescribed Adderall next semester. These promises aren't always kept. Abstinence from partying and impulsive behavior isn't necessary for a young athlete, but no relationship with drugs, alcohol, and partying should interfere with a healthy, sustainable lifestyle. Chapter 17, Mental Balance. One, quote, I am here today to cross the swamp, not to fight all the alligators. Rosamund Stone Zander in The Art of Possibility. A successful student-athlete's career includes making small, correct decisions over and over again, getting to bed sober and on time, paying attention in classes, sitting down to meditate instead of scrolling Instagram, etc. These efforts won't earn praise or immediate reward, but the right decisions build momentum, resulting in necessary improvements. With an improved sleep routine, diet, and relationship with alcohol on my phone, I became a new person as a senior. I faced problems but was less threatened by them and enjoyed a sense of mental stability. For the first time in my career, I didn't dread hearing the alarm go off. I had a disciplined routine and lived with a pervasive sense of satisfaction. And I also enjoyed myself, which was important. Unlike previous years, my routine was pleasant and sustainable. Yes, sometimes I had to summon some willpower to make a skillful choice, but I wasn't my own slave, forcing myself to do things all day long. 
and I tried not to criticize myself when I didn't follow my routine perfectly. I just got back on track again and again. The unfortunate mindset I recognized in myself early on was that of a suffering athlete trying to deal with failure by sacrificing virtually everything else in life as a means towards improvement, a rigid discipline that becomes an identity. Some of the desperate plans I made as a sophomore were absurd. I thought that abstinence from what I enjoyed would make me deserve to play well and earn the respect of the coaching staff. If I made enough sacrifices, the universe would have to reward me. My behavior was self-flagellation, the religious ritual of whipping oneself to please God in the hopes of earning a better life. Trying to religiously commit to a rigid set of rules and principles as a way to find security and relief is a common tendency. In childhood, boyhood, and youth, Nikolenka tries to solve his own adolescent problems by, quote, writing down a list of my daily tasks and duties, which should last me all my life, together with a statement of my life's aim and the rules by which I meant unswervingly to be guided, end quote. I laughed as I read this, remembering how many times I'd made and broken the same commitment. Applying extreme remedies is always tough, so difficult that most of us eventually give up until another idea another wave of inspiration washes over us. What's ironic about this process is that renouncing temporary pleasures is a temporary pleasure in itself. When we make promises to ourselves and enjoy anticipating how much better the future will be, we ignore how difficult the promises can be to keep. A failure to live up to our impossibly high standards then results in more pain and disappointment. Nikolenka's commitment to his new, rigid life lasted only until a line he drew on the paper to organize the various sections came out crooked. He debated starting over and then was called downstairs by his father and never looked at the list again. Yes, coaches appreciate players who make personal sacrifices for the sake of improvement, and they appreciate players who show up on time every day and bring consistent effort and energy. What they appreciate most, barring any truly awful behavior, are the players who give the team the best chance to win. Nervous, overthinking athletes want to believe that the more they suffer, the more likely they are to play well. But usually, they suffer for the sake of suffering. Allen Iverson was notorious for blowing off practice and staying at the clubs late into the night before games. Undoubtedly, most if not all of his teammates showed up every day ready to practice hard and compete and were well-rested before games. Yet year after year, Iverson was among the league leaders in minutes played, Dennis Rodman, the Hall of Fame power forward who won five championships with the Pistons and the Bulls, lived a wild life off the court. He once missed a practice during the NBA Finals because he flew across the country to party and participate in a pro wrestling event. These wild lifestyles aren't what we should try to emulate, but they serve as reminders that, in the end, the best players play. Occasionally, the free and relaxed spirit of an athlete who isn't doing quote-unquote everything right can correlate with superior attitude and confidence on the court or the field. An athlete's behavior should be whatever maximizes the chance of playing well and enjoying it. Sometimes that can mean sleeping in an extra hour or spending a relaxed evening with friends or going out on Saturday night for a break in the routine. Two, quote, neither in your actions be sluggish nor in your conversation without method nor wandering in thought nor let there be in your soul either inward contention or external effusion, nor in life be so busy as to have no leisure. Marcus Aurelius. When I'm thinking rationally, I understand that gradual progress over a long period of time 
leads to better results than short, anxiety-fueled attempts at improvement. This isn't a recommendation for laziness or for giving less than full effort. It's an acknowledgement that gradual and achievable improvements are enjoyable and yield results superior to the frantic work ethic that self-help gurus and coaches sometimes recommend. Early on in my college career, my tendency was to try to add things to an already busy schedule as a way to be more productive, often sacrificing sleep and necessary rest as a result. As a senior, instead of adding more activities to a busy schedule, I cultivated intensity and awareness in shorter, more productive periods. I realized that shooting for 30 minutes mindfully and without distraction does more good than shooting for two hours with 60% focus and energy. Studying hard for 90 minutes with unbroken attention before enjoying a meal with friends does more good than a four-hour mix of Instagram, studying, and texting friends. Three, quote, there is no more miserable human being than one in whom nothing is habitual but indecision. William James, The Principles of Psychology. Instead of struggling with ourselves every day and relying on constant willpower to make intelligent decisions, we should establish positive habits and routines that make good decisions easy. For instance, the habit of keeping your phone away from your bed and not checking it until you've completed a morning routine will set you up for better days and therefore a better career. Whatever it is you want to do, get extra work in, go to physical therapy, study without distractions, etc. It's much easier and more pleasant to establish a habit than to rely on your own willpower to make new good decisions day after day. Most athletes have goals, like making the starting lineup, earning a scholarship, making all-conference, going pro overseas, or getting into an elite graduate school. Goals can be helpful motivators, but it's your daily habits that most often determine where you end up. Your actions in the present moment sow the seeds of your future, and it's important that your habits and routines leave time for leisure and spontaneity. It was my experience that a meditation practice helped me resonate with healthier habits and behaviors and allowed me to establish a happier, more productive life. Okay, thank you for listening to that section of the audiobook. As always, if you'd like to read or listen to the whole thing, you can find the link to Amazon in the show notes, or you can visit billyhanson.net forward slash book. If you know someone, an athlete, a coach, or a parent who you think might be interested or might benefit from reading the book, I encourage you to share the link with them and tell them about the book. And other ways to support me are to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, to share the podcast with someone who you think might like it. And the best way to stay in contact with my work is to subscribe to my newsletter, billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and I will see you here for the next episode. It's the sauce.